to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. We're back today talking about Dersu Yuzala from 1975, a first in many respects. Yeah, a very different film than every other film that we have watched for a lot of reasons. Oh yeah, this is Kurosawa's first and only film made outside of Japan, made in the USSR. First and only one, this is a big one for us, shot on 70mm film. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, does not fit on my TV. Yeah, no, it didn't lot. I mean, it looked cool, but I was like, I want to see this in theaters. Maybe one day, probably not. Also, the first biopic from Kurosawa. So many of his films are based on literature. This is one that's actually based on a real person's life. Which I did not know watching it. Afterward, I like briefly checked the Wikipedia and it was like, this entire thing is based on a true story. That was written down. And I was like, oh, I, I just thought he might have made it up. The real Vladimir Arsniev wrote this book about his experiences with Dersu. And Kurosawa was going to make a few more biopics. It's sort of like, I don't want to call them exactly that, but it is stuff that's based on real people's lives. Next week, we'll see Kagemusha, which is actually really based on written Japanese history. And then Matadayo will be about a real person. But for the most part, he's really gone entirely in the fictional realm. This is a movie that's not a whole lot based on stories. No, it's about people. <laughs> this is a movie about vibes. This is, as Chapel would say, an OG dude's rock movie. My Letterboxd review is, uh, this movie is the found a guy concept taken to its extreme. <laughs> like, oh, hey, I found a guy. <laughs> so there's a lot of backgrounds that goes into this one. We're going to get into a little bit of dark territory here. I will issue the official trigger warning for the audience. Not at all, ironically. In December of 1971, Kurosawa attempted suicide following in Dodeska Den's domestic commercial failure. He is just depressed. I mean, after years of failures working with the U.S. studio system, he's no longer able to make movies at home, and his only way of making movies is really essentially to sell out and be bent to the will of another studio system. Which he would, yeah, doesn't want to do. It's crazy that he went from one of the most famous and respected directors in the entire world, winning all these awards, and now he's just barely able to make anything. We see this man in his whole career and his entire life in the big picture, but it doesn't look like that from his own perspective. Richie talks about this a lot in his book to really give more of an idea of what was happening. This makes a little bit more sense considering that he is Japanese. And if you think about it, it is kind of like an artistic harakiri. The art and the artist are so intertwined and he sees that his career is really at its logical end. He is finished. There is no reason to live. He has done his life's purpose. I, I understand, yeah, like, that makes some sense. I don't blame him for anything, and just, it's wild that, like, why did he have such trouble with such credentials? How did he make all these movies that were so well-loved and well-received? I guess it just changes in the studio system, went out of fashion? Yeah, so the Japanese studios were really bending a lot more towards younger filmmakers who were making stuff that was gonna be financial hits. Kurosawa made a lot of financial hits, but his movies were also very expensive, and they were a lot riskier. So a lot of younger filmmakers were making like pinku porno films or Yakuza movies or disaster films or comedies. Things that Kurosawa has, you know, he's tackled them in certain respects, not porn, but he's an older guy. He and the other three older filmmakers, they made that little club that produced Dodeska Den and then it didn't work. So then that totally fizzled out. They were hoping to rejuvenate their own status in the independent Japanese film market, and it didn't happen. It didn't take off. That's so sad. So he was really just left with nothing else. I mean, that's you know, it's the same classic story with Hollywood, where you're really big, and then they'll chew you up and spit you out. 
Richie says that Kurosawa is kind of different after that happened. He kind of has a little bit of a different mentality. He was much more open to the press afterwards. I think that's, you know, helping him actually get funding again and things. Also, you know, as the world is developing, more and more globalization is occurring. By 1975, it's much easier to get in contact with people around the world than it was in post-war Tokyo. Yeah, late 60s, early 70s are like a huge period of change for like the entire world economy. Exactly. Now he's able to actually really step into his idolized position in the world film stage. He was a huge hit in Japan, never and loved his movies, but his moment in Japan kind of passed, and probably all over the world. Many people didn't discover him until far after these movies came out. Like, I know Rashomon was big when it came out, but then, you know, ten years later, they could be having a whole other resurgence across the world, and he wouldn't know without this, like, new technology. Yeah, exactly, and when we get to, like, the new film school graduates of the late 70s and the 80s, he's a huge influence on them. He has a huge influence on so many filmmakers that don't discover him until later, myself included. He's made works that stand the test of time, and so now he's able to kind of lean into it more. It is, it's, you could see it as selling out to an extent because you know that he doesn't really actually want to do this. He was appearing in a lot of Suntory whiskey commercials, drinking whiskey on camera, yeah, it doesn't really fit his vibe, but, like, I don't blame him. Yeah, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. You gotta get that paper. It's sad, but eventually they were contacted by people from the Soviet Union. In this time period, around 1972, the Soviet Union is trying to court the Japanese a bit because they're starting to explore Siberia more, and it's an area full of resources, but they need to get more investment capital in there. So this is a way of forming cultural relationships with one another. Obviously, we know how much Kurosawa loves Russian literature, and so they reach out to him asking if he would like to make a movie for them. Moss Film, which wound up making this, mostly produces it. There was a little bit of money from a conglomerate in Japan, but for the most part, this is financed by the Russians, and they gave him the pick of the litter. They said that he could make the movie that he wanted to make within the restrictions of the Soviet Union. We'll get into it later. There are certainly things that are kind of testaments to the limitations imposed on him. But for the most part, this was fair game. And he loved the book Dersu Yuzala. I've read, and I'm not entirely sure about this, but it's on the wiki that he wanted to make it a long time ago, like in Japan, but it didn't work as a story outside of its native land in the Usuri region of Siberia. This took more or less four years for him to get ready from start to finish. Two years spent shooting in Siberia. Two years. It took two years to get Redbeard made. At least there they were in a fake town that they built. Here he's doing two years in the wilderness. Yeah, I, I was watching this and it gave me a Gear of the Wrath of God vibes where you can basically tell that the crew is also going on this adventure whether they want to or not. <laughs> there are some movies where it looks like they're going on an adventure, but really they're just like going out for reef shots and locations. This is like, they look like they're out there and they're not <laughs> coming back until it's done. You get that vibe from the film itself. Which, uh, I, I am not surprised that they were into production troubles, is what I'll say about that. Yeah, oh, this sounds absolutely miserable. The whole point is that it's miserable for the characters, but it's actually real and they're actually there, so it's miserable for everyone. But is it miserable for the audience? We should get into it. In 1902, Captain Vladimir Arseniev leads a topographical survey expedition through the unmapped Usuri region of Siberia. They soon encounter the Goldie hunter, Dursu Uzla, who befriends Arseniev and agrees to guide the group. Near the end of their journey, Dursu saves Arseniev's life by building a shelter during a blizzard, further cementing their bond. The two men part ways, and reunite in 1907 when Arseniev leads another expedition. The aging hunter is beginning to lose his eyesight and starts to fear punishment from nature after firing upon a tiger. 
Darsu agrees to move to Arseniev's home, but finds himself unable to bear civilized life. He returns to the wild with a new rifle from Arseniev, but is murdered for the firearm by a thief. So, yeah, it's a pretty simple story, despite the fact that it's two hours and 24 minutes long, or whatever, two hours and 22 minutes. There's a lot of things that happen, but also not a lot happens at the same time. The Criterion Channel plot summary is, a Russian expedition goes to the woods and meets a man. And that is literally all that happens. <laughs> that definitely happens. This one, I mean, uh, once again, like the lower depths, like Dodeska Den, it's a little bit tough to talk about because this is another one of the most plot-light Kurosawa yeah. films. So it's tough to nail down like a beat by beat because it really is a lot of things happen and then other things happen. And then at the end, we kind of wrap it all up with a coda that tells you everything. 80% of the movie is just Dursu and Vladimir are in the woods together with or without other people and they're doing stuff. And what the stuff what the stuff they're doing doesn't really honestly matter that much. They're just in it the woods. It really, yeah. really doesn't. I'm like I don't even know what they're doing. I don't. I barely see them do work. Yeah, right. <laughs> I uh, the entire movie thought of Vladimir Arseniev's men were gonna mutiny him for like not paying attention, not giving shit about them because he's clearly more invested in Dursuza than the crew. <sighs> Something that's gonna make this movie really tough to talk about is the fact that like Arseniev is not a character. He is like purely a vessel. He's purely a simp there's nothing to him yeah i don't know i don't know anything about him which is so weird considering the fact that this man himself wrote the book i'm actually kind of interested in reading it yeah me too i I couldn't find too too much about like the comparisons i attribute also the way that this movie's made and like all the extraneous details that don't really add anything except atmosphere to maybe being direct adaptations from the book and just trying to make a very accurate portrayal of the book on screen that would make sense to me he is obsessed with accuracy. That's what happened in The Idiot, and it made The Idiot very bad. But I don't think it ruined this one for me. I, the entire time, was okay with anything that was happening. Does Arsenev even mention that he has a wife and son? No, I don't think he says it at all. He mentions that he lives in town. It's, like, almost surprising when we go back to his home at the end, and then there are other people. Yeah, I wasn't surprised. I, like, figured that he was a very normal family man kind of archetype of a solid Russian captain, which is why it's so interesting that he gets involved with the other guy's life. But yeah, you know, his wife, I I was surprised that he seemed to love his wife and kids. Does he? He never touches his wife, like, not once. I don't know. What surprised me most when they got back was how much he didn't seem to care about Dursu anymore. Dursu was like, I'm miserable and I want to die. And he's like, he'll be fine. I don't, whatever. But that was what surprised me so much about when they got back. This mission, it does not matter, like, it's, at all. It's it, so funny how little we know about the mission. I was actually, like, laughing when I was watching this. They're like, yeah, we're here to survey. And then, like, an hour later, they're like, oh, yeah, we're specifically here to survey this one lake that we haven't mentioned until right now. And we're around <laughs> at this current moment. I was like, what? Was that always the mission? Like, yeah, but, like, who cares? Whatever. They mentioned it, like, twice. <laughs> I really wish the mission was important because I feel like it would carry the movie a little bit better. Or, like, just give it a little bit more of, like, a sense of direction, because it does feel very aimless, especially considering that it's divided into two expeditions, neither of which matter, both of which have different crews of people that we never really get to know. You hardly ever get names. Like, it's kind of like in Sanjiro, where we, like, just don't know all of those kids, samurai guys. Like, it's a group movie, but it's not. There is a group that's there, but they're just props. They absolutely are. This movie is about Captain Vladimir Arseniev and Dursu Uzal and literally nothing and no one else. <laughs> like, everything else, even the location, is completely incidental. It's about these two guys vibing. <laughs> That's it. It's about their relationship, which is kind of a beautiful one. 
I love that relationship. It is, I think, so well shown once it finally, like, starts to get developed. Because at first, you know, Arseniev is kind of not engaging with him too much, but he seems interested in him. If we knew more about him, we might be able to get more into their relationship, because it feels very one-way, where it's like, I don't know why Dersu likes this guy. I know why Arseniev likes him. Yeah, yeah, why does Dersu give a shit about Capitan? You can tell he does. You can tell he really cares about Capitan. I was debating, like, are we going to say Captain or Capitan? No, he is Capitan. Yeah, he's Capitan. That's basically, he's called that more than he's called Arsenia, that's for sure. I, like, forgot he had a name. He literally says his name twice in the entire movie. Yeah, he gets called Vladimir by one of the other guys, and I was like, what? We know his, his first name. <laughs> yeah, it is unclear why Dersu likes Capitan, but like, I guess, like, you know, he can tell he's good people, essentially, which is his only moral code. Capitan is very nice to him. He's never overbearing. He never, like, convinces him to do something he doesn't want to do, really, without, like, some kind of mutual respect and understanding. Dersu is very much a Kurosawa character. Oh, yeah. I was thinking, like, this is Redbeard. This is Mr. Too Damn Honorable. This is the best man on Earth. Yeah, and, you know, so in touch with nature, which Kurosawa is always very about. He doesn't like how the world gets more industrialized and drives people further apart. That's exactly what this story is, and I think that's probably why it speaks to him so much, is because they're encroaching on his area. Civilization is reaching this group, the Goldie people, who are starting to disappear, and they're not going to fit into the mold of a new way of life. You know, Dersu will not survive civilization. But it's coming nonetheless, even though Arseniev wants to stop that. He doesn't want to lose his friend. He wants to help change him or take care of him. Yeah, he tries to integrate it, but you can't really do that. By the end, I find it very impactful that, like... So in the first, like, minute of the film, he is going into this town that's just being built. He's like, oh, I'm looking for a grave. And they're like, no one's died here. This town's being, like, made today. And he's looking for the grave of Dersu, who died in that area. But really, the reason this area is probably settled was based on the maps and information that Arsenia was gathering in his journey. Like, he is directly responsible for the expansion that didn't directly kill Dersu, but, like, is the thing that was threatening Dersu's way of living. Yeah, it's like, it's not him orchestrating everything, but he is the one who is carrying out the will of those in power. He is a cog in the machine that is gonna take this man's life and livelihood. Yeah, without Arseniev's work, that area probably wouldn't have had a village. Not say like, if he didn't do it, someone else would have, but still, he did it. <laughs> and he never, at any point, really intends not to do it. He makes the maps faithfully, he reports all the details. His work is directly leading to the village being led there, which leads to the presumed desecration of the tomb. It's a little weird that we start in that little frame story and we never go back to it at the end, but it's, it's also a little odd for Kurosawa to even have a frame story, besides making the most famous frame story of Rashomon. I got a lot of Rashomon in this movie, honestly. It's, I think that always comes to mind because it's in the forest, but also the way that Kurosawa and his cinematographer are emphasizing the sun in this movie. So many shots of the sun, and oh my god, it looks so cool in 70mm. Yeah, oh yeah, we should talk about, like, the film. The, and, like, the okay, color. Wait. The color's weird. What is going on? <laughs> I, t I texted you five minutes into this movie, and I was like, are the colors supposed to be flashing? It was crazy. For the entire film, the colors are, like, a little bit flashing between, like, red and green. Like, it's like they took, like, the white balance and were just, like, twisting it back and forth constantly for the entire movie. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Like, what's no going clue. on? I have no idea whatsoever. It's so strange. Like, there's sometimes where it's more noticeable than others. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the, in the like, very beginning, it's, like, brutal, and I, like, almost was like, I don't know if I can watch this. But then it gets better throughout the movie. The thing is, like, the color in this movie is so vibrant. 
whatever film stock this is, it just looks so nice, especially when we get to see the Amba Tigers. They're orange and black and white, like amongst all these autumn leaves. It just looks so appealing to the eyes. But then there's stuff that's like outside of the world of the movie of just the physical film stock itself that is just having these waves go through it of like, all of a sudden you're like, why am I seeing red and blue and black particles moving around? Obviously, I know about film grain, but I haven't seen a movie do this. Yeah, I never seen a movie where the colors are just changing constantly. Like, is the stock just volatile or is it badly preserved? And this is just all artifacts that were not part of the movie. I'm going to say that it's the stock because it, the movie looks really good. I think the movie is very well preserved. It might just be a, something about the way that they did it in Russia or maybe the film being used in Siberia. Maybe a little too cold some days. In the beginning, when he's just in a town and, like, nothing's happening and it's not very pretty, it was, like, a little much to watch. But then when they're actually in nature and everything is so visceral, it's it's very cool. It really makes everything feel alive. Yeah, even, like, the ground and nature itself, which it's supposed to be, especially in Dursuzla's conception of the world. Everything is people. The sun is a very important person because if he died, everyone else would too. It's funny because, like, the film itself is moving, but the camera really isn't. This is a very static movie. I would also attribute that probably to just being in the forest. You know, there's not as much room and ability to do a lot of movement. But usually the camera is really just following people as they move around. But a lot of times it's locked down for several minutes at a time, usually around a campfire or divided by a uh, tree or something. And we just kind of stay there and just are there with them. I like it. Just vibes. Yeah, I also noticed there wasn't much camera movement. There was one scene where the camera was shaking, I think unintentionally. They're probably shivering. I mean, Yeah, they're literally shooting in Siberia with no one around, which is crazy. I do wonder if Werner Herzog saw this film and was like, I could do that. <laughs> they didn't seem miserable enough. Yeah, I mean, really just the movie follows Dursu, who's this very cool character. We should talk about Dursu Uzla himself. He rules. Super funny. He knows everything. He is the nicest man on earth. Yeah, he's, he's perfect. He really is. It's interesting to have the emphasis of this Russian movie by a Japanese director to be on an Asian character showing up the Europeans. He's very, you know, portly and short, and all the Russian men are, like, all about bravado and hitting their targets. But Dersu, he knows what's actually important, and he is such a caring individual, which I love. There's a really great scene pretty early on where they find shelter in, like, a little cabin that's made. And Dersu insists that they leave matches, rice, and salt for whoever will come through there next. Because there are other people that explore this region. Dersu sometimes finds tracks on the ground and he's like, oh, these are Chinese boots. Or there's this one man who lives here or comes here constantly. I know him. Because he knows this whole area. This area is explored by him. He knows it completely. It's just not explored by the Russian government. That's a very good point and good to emphasize. And when he asks for the salt matches and rice or whatever, Captain Vladimir is like, oh, why? Do you, are you going to come back? He's like, no, it's for whoever comes on next. Like, they, they couldn't even understand why he would want these things. I think it's the first moment when he starts to have an impact. There's a really great quote from Arsenal. There is some voiceover narration throughout the movie because it's technically a frame story. So it gives Arsenia the opportunity to tell us more about Dersu without it really being shown. And he says, like, Dersu cared about people that he had never met and probably never would. That is exactly a Dr. Redbeard type of thing. He reminded me very much of Dr. Redbeard, the idea of a character that Kurosawa really loves. I will say, like, despite the fact that he is perfect, he's not exactly, like, enviable. I can't imagine the viewer is supposed to want to be him. He's just kind of this supernatural figure. You, like, want to have his connection with nature, but you don't want to actually live the way that he does. 
we're all Vladimir Arseniev's who love this man and want desperately to know him and to keep him safe, but it's kind of out of our control. We get a little bit of his backstory because his wife, son, and daughter all died of smallpox, which probably ravages these Goldie tribes that are spread throughout the area. We see him praying sometimes and giving offerings, but other than that, Dersu is more about his philosophies on life rather than, like, being a distinctly, like, real person. Even though he is a real person, he was a real man. This book had actually been adapted about a decade before this. Really? It, like, for Russian television. But that version sucks. Kurosawa said that it's, like, an adventure movie and it, like, doesn't actually capture, like, the sadness and truth of this man and, like, what he represents. But it'd be cool to see it. It's not often that you could find Kurosawa's technically making a remake of something. Yeah, it's funny that he has even seen the Russian television version of Dersuza. Like, of course he's seen the Russian television. He's the only, only Japanese man in all of history to <laughs> see the Russian television version of this obscure memoir from the 1900s. But, you know, this is how he is. Yeah, no, it's very in character. But yeah, so there's a lot of just, you know, surveying, moving around, Arsniev talking. The one big scene in the first expedition in 1902 is the frozen lake on, I believe it's called Lake Kanaka. This is amazing, this scene. Goes on for a very long time in Kurosawa fashion, but it is really, really cool. The initial search party that Vladimir Arseniev has sent out with is now shrunk down to like four people, two, his like two best men and him and Dersuzla. They're on, like, a boat, and they just, like, suddenly hit ice, and there's no more water left. So him and Dersuzla go out to, like, survey the lake, which is what this expedition's about in the first place. Apparently. Yeah, apparently. I've read some Jules Verne's novels, which are about, like, people exploring Africa or whatever, and usually there's, like, some lake or something they're trying to find, but it almost, like, doesn't matter. It's really just about the journey and everything else. So I wasn't surprised that they knew about a lake that they had to go to. But anyway, they try and find it. It's unclear if they even do, because at no point do you see I think they're just on it. I because they're on ice, except there's grass growing out of it. I don't think so, because there's, there's grass growing and stuff, so... It's... But it's like reeds, which would, like, grow in water anyway. Hard to... I, I, I don't know. Siberia, it's... Well, if, if maybe if they map it out, we could figure it out. Yeah, no. It's funny, because at the very beginning, Tersuzal is like, I'm getting... I like. He says something along the lines, like, I'm getting bad vibes, I think we should leave. And the captain's like, nah, let's just keep going, it'll be fine. Like, I'm not worried about it. And Dersu says, okay, you're my captain now. You're my capitan now. I will listen to you. Even though it really is, we know the other way around. I guess you could call it like a illusion versus reality thing, even though Donald Ritchie never mentions it in this chapter. Dersu certainly understands the reality of living in the wilderness, and Arsniev kind of does. He definitely does at some points, but does not always, because he definitely makes dumb decisions. He would have died without Dersu, certainly. Oh, and that, certainly in that situation, and probably in many others, which he, he acknowledges, totally. He says, I, I know my life to that man many times over. Because he has no personality, we never get any pride off of him. He is just a respected captain, I guess. They're on ice, essentially, and it's just surrounded by, like, reeds... And then suddenly they realize a uh, night's coming and they have no idea where they are and they are not going to get back to camp in time. Technology doesn't help them here. The compass does not point them in the right direction. I feel like that's definitely a touch. Dersu points out that if they stay for the night, they will die. Yeah, and we start getting real Kurosawa wind going here, like the most ever. Yeah, it's like literally like they like bought a tornado for the movie. Like it's <laughs> an actual I, blizzard seems to be happening. I don't know if it was a giant fan or if they just waited for a blizzard. Equally likely. They start getting whipped by wind as the sun sets, and it looks super dire. And Dersu says, all right, our only chance of surviving is to start working real fast and cut down all the grass we can. And so they go at it. And for what is presumably like five hours in movie time, but 30 minutes in film time, 
what it feels like. Feels they like just, it. yeah. It's, it's, yeah, not, it's not, but it's, like it, it's a long time. It's a really long time. They just cut reeds, and they're just cutting, cutting, and they're, like, bunching them up. They're taking bunches, and they're bunching them together, making a giant pile. And the captain's, like, clearly losing it. He keeps falling over. Dursu, who doesn't seem exhausted at all, it's just pure strength. He's like, come on, man, like, don't give up on me. And finally, the captain collapses. He collapses three times, but the third time he doesn't get up. And then he, like, wakes up inside, like, a little hut, or, like, in this little crawl space, essentially. And it is a fort that Dursu made around him using, I think, the captain's tripod, even though Dursu holds it the entire time. Oh, yeah. We don't get too much of a good view of it, but it is, yeah, all of the grass and reeds that they were using. They built it. Arsenev wakes up, and he's like, wow. Dersu really did save my life. And then they finally hear the gunshot from their other men to signify where they are. And then they have a pretty gay moment. The closest we ever get to them being lovers. It's so close to them kissing, yeah. They do start hugging each other and then rolling around. Their faces are real close. Yeah, kiss, kiss, kiss. yeah. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's very sweet. And like, it makes sense. They both almost just died and like through their combined effort survived. Yeah, and I wonder if that might just be a bond that's difficult to fully express because now they really are tied together as one through surviving a life-threatening scenario. The thing is, Arsenev was already as committed to Dersu before that as he is after that. I don't know necessarily. I I think that really cements it, if not already. I think it was already cemented, but it certainly means that it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And then shortly after this, the expedition's over. They're like, well, we found the lake. We're going home. The time kind of passes breezily. You don't really know how much time is between each cut. So much time spent before the lake, just kind of moving around and finding things. And then all of a sudden, they finally reach. And then all of a sudden, all right, now we're done. Yep. He's like, well, I'm going home. Do you want to come with me? And Dursu's like, "Uh, absolutely not. There's no work for me. Like, what would I do in the town? Which he's absolutely right about. So he just goes off into the woods. They meet up at the train tracks, which divide civilization and the wilderness straight down the middle. You can see uh, power lines in the distance on the right side, and then on the left is just a big hill and snow. Dursu is literally like, oh, I've heard of railroads before, so this is what they are. Richie says that that's a very Japanese touch, too, that they always use railroads as a signal of, like, urban progress and industrialization in Japan. Kind of like a nice Japanese touch in this Russian film, which we get every occasionally. But overall, you kind of forget that Kurosawa's even doing this because it does feel so much different. Do you have an answer to this question? How is Kurosawa talking to the actors? Through a translator the entire time? Like, he doesn't speak Russian, does he? It must be. He, he doesn't speak any other language other than Japanese, so there must have been a translator. I mean, he probably has a person. <laughs> yeah, Kurosawa's like, I can't wait to see the subtitles. Dersu <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> speaks like a broken Russian, like not exactly like the subtitles translated as being not perfect. He's always like, head no good. It's very endearing in a way. I, I really love the way that he talks. I was curious how he learned any Russian, but you know, I guess it makes sense, like brief contact with the developing European power. Yeah, again, we don't get too much about his concrete backstory, and it, it does feel like if you were making this less directly an adaptation of the book and more like just trying to make the actual full story of one of these people, that it could either have been following Dersu entirely, because Dersu was really a figure in Arsniev's life rather than the two of them to an extent, or having more with Arsniev before the expedition and then getting a sense of who he is, what he needs, and then how he gets it from Dersu and then how that affects him afterwards or something. Yeah, I see why you're saying that. I am glad they didn't do that. I liked it the way it was. No, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that they have made what I assume to be a pretty faithful recreation of this actual story. I, it's just 
for a Kurosawa movie that usually is very much about plot, this is very out of his wheelhouse. Yeah, it really just does come out of nowhere. He is just like an everyman, man with a mustache, captain. He's what you think of a Russian guy looking like. Definitely archetypal. His name is literally Vladimir. Yeah. <laughs> five years passes there's an intermission, which is cool. Uh, and then in those 10 seconds, five years go by. And then they're on Expedition 2. It's spring now, which is a little bit different. He's with totally different guys. We don't know anything else about it. Yeah, exactly. We don't even know what they're looking for this time. There's like a two-minute river with ice, which was very cool. I like that that showed that it was definitely a different season. And we're like, okay, cool. Like, you know, winter is ending. Spring has come. This expedition will take a full year because we will end it back in the winter. In both expeditions, we meet Dersu pretty immediately. Yeah, because like the film is nothing without him. Arsniev gets told, oh, there was some guy, some hunter who asked who the captain was, but I didn't tell anybody. I know how to keep a military secret, so I just told him to go away. And Arsniev's like, what? No, 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 it's my friend. He's like, I'll literally kill you. He's like, take your gun. No. <laughs> he runs. He's like, that's my best friend in the world. And they meet and they're so happy. Their reunion is so cute. Yeah, yeah. They're like jumping. They're, they're a big log in the way. So it's like holding hands over it. I'm so happy to see each other. They have a really nice catch-up scene where the frame is divided and the crew is singing in the top left corner and then they're in the bottom right. Arsniev has never been happier than he is here, but you can also already tell that Dersu is a little bit different. He's looking a little grayer and pretty immediately he mentions things about not seeing as well or worrying that his head might not be as good because they go walking soon and he's like, oh, I lost my pipe. Uh, I'm going to have to backtrack. I, I've never lost. Like, I don't lose my pipe, you know? Like, what's going on with me? Yeah, it's this iconic little thing. It's really cool, actually. Like, it buzz me that he never puts tobacco in it. He just always lights it and <laughs> just starts smoking. I'm like, okay. He's just smoking the pipe. Yeah. <laughs> King. He uses a match now instead of using a log from the fire, which I thought was a very nice touch. He made money, and then he lost it all because he gave it to someone. They just took it away, and he's like, I don't get it. Why does that happen? <laughs> the world is clearly... He's interacting more with it, and that's, I think you're supposed to notice that. Yeah, there's more expansion into the area. Even if it's not much, it's still, he's encountering people. This is where we get a really weird, I don't want to call it a subplot, but it is a thing that happens where there is like this emphasis on the fact that there are Chinese people in this area, and they're like kidnapping women and killing men and stuff. I don't know why any of this is in here. I assume this must just be autobiographical or whatever. But what Richie says is that this is an influence of making the movie in the Soviet Union, is that they do have this anti-Chinese propaganda that is kind of forced on the movie, which I hadn't thought about it, but it's not a single nice thing said about Chinese people in this movie. It's very negative, especially from Dersu, who is Asian. I think he's like indigenous to the area. Yeah, the, the thing is, the area that they're in is at some point in history, Chinese and was colonized and taken, you know, in Tsarish conquest. So it is trying to reaffirm Moscow owns this. You know, this is our territory. Look at them impeding and crossing our border and look at what they're doing to these women and blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, when you look at the full story, it really was Chinese to begin with. And then they were the ones that came on. And it's not given too much attention, but it is like, I don't know why any of it is in the movie. Other than that, it made more sense in the meantime. That's a weird undercurrent. I do really like that scene, though, when those guys reveal themselves in the tall grass, when they all stand up at that one camp. But again, it's like, none of it matters. Yeah, whatever. It, like, made sense as a scene to happen in the film. I don't know. Like, it was like every other scene where, even even though they're people, they're no different than them running into a tiger or them being stuck in a river. Like, it was just another one of those things. 
And the tiger is a big part of this second expedition. In the beginning of this, Dersu starts talking about the tiger and what it means, because there's one that they think is nearby, but we don't really see it. Yeah, he doesn't show up in the first time, they're just worried about it. We do eventually get to see it later on, and oh, it is magnificent. It's a real, real fucking tiger, and it seems to be actually there with them. No doubt in my mind that that is a real Siberian tiger, an Amba tiger, as they call it. And it's like, wow, that's those two actors sharing a frame with that giant tiger. You only ever see them frame together when the tiger's pretty far away, but the camera itself will be right up on the tiger, just snarling into it, which is crazy. That tiger moves pretty close. It definitely gets close to them by the end of that one long shot of, like, the triangle of the three of them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I am super curious as to how they shot any of this. The tiger gets very close, and Dersu shoots at it, and, you know, the tiger runs away. And this really upsets Dersu, because he realizes he has almost certainly killed it, and that's, in his religion's kind of spiritual understanding of the world, that's a very bad thing to do. Dersu has been showing some dementia signs throughout this movie, and this is really, like, the tipping point. Something that really sets him off, and because... You know, we see a whole photo montage earlier of Dersu and Arsenev being super happy together and doing a lot of things on their expedition. Yeah, my fondest memories of Dersu are that autumn. But he acknowledged that Dersu does seem to be a little bit different, and then after this, he was never the same. He starts getting much more angry at people, yelling at them for pretty minor things, and his eyesight is getting a lot worse. And he kind of sees it's like a punishment for shooting at this Amba. He certainly feels that. Like, Dersu thinks that Kanga, I believe, is the name of the spirit of the forest, is getting revenge on him for killing a tiger, which is, like, a sin. Pretty soon, he smells a boar in the wild, and Arseniev tries to shoot it, and he misses. And he's like, why didn't you shoot it? He's like, I didn't, I didn't see it. And then there's, like, a whole thing about he, he really can't see much at all anymore. They have the parallel with two different types of scenes in both expeditions, which they do a couple times in this movie. Another parallel they make is Dersu is put into another life-threatening situation with Arsniev when they go rafting across a river and it messes up and then now there's the threat that he's going to get killed because the raft is going to go down into all these rocks and things and break. It's kind of like a reversal of Arsniev saving Dersu, but not really because Dersu is the one instructing all of them on what to do and it's all of them together and it goes on for a really long time and it's not very exciting. Yeah, not, not my favorite scene in the movie. It's not nearly as good as the scene on the lake. But in the first expedition, there was a scene of some of the guys putting a bottle on a string and having it fly back and forth, and they keep missing, and then Dersu does it, and he doesn't shoot the bottle, he shoots the string, which is way harder and way cooler. Kind of like in Yojimbo, where he throws the knife into the leaf. Now, Dersu is kind of replicating that for himself because he needs to test his skills because he's freaking out, and he stabs a string into a tree and hangs his glove from it and tries to shoot it back where he missed a deer. He's like, I can't even see it. And he moves closer, shoots and misses, and then he moves even closer, shoots and misses again, and he's like, I, he's a hunter. This is what he does, and he needs this. This is, starts freaking out. Yeah, he says, how will I live in the taiga if I can't see? Yeah, and Arsenev's like, yeah, you, you can't. He's offered for Dersu to come home with him, and this is what finally actually lets it happen. But Richie does point out one flaw with this. Why didn't Arsniev offer Dersu glasses? He's like, the technology definitely existed at the time, and he says it's kind of insensitive to think that Arsniev wouldn't have done that, and I'm like, I guess it just must have been something that didn't happen, but that is a pretty good point that... 
I, I think there's more going on than just his eyesight. I think his brain itself is going, but they put so much emphasis on his eyes, which is a problem that theoretically could be solved. Even though, like, I didn't think of that solution, but I'm also not the one in the movie. Yeah, I didn't think of it either. Presumably that just doesn't happen in Arsenio's <laughs> memoirs or whatever, like, I don't know. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, I can only speculate, but I was like, oh, damn, that is a really good point, actually. There's multiple ways to lose your eyesight when you get old. There are some that, like, glasses wouldn't fix. Like, if he had cataracts, which were clouding his vision, which would be different. They don't say much about it. Yeah, so whatever. It doesn't happen. He is still has lost his eyesight, and then he, goes, he does go home with him. Yeah, there's, like, the coda of this movie. The last 15 minutes. It's really sad. This is just heartbreaking, because I love Darasu so much, like Arsniev does. Um, he just is not built for this. He cannot live in the quote-unquote civilized way. He just stares at the fire all day. At one point, he's like, oh, I'm just going to go shoot, you know, for fun. And she's like, you can't do that. If you start shooting the gun down, people will freak out. He gets mad when they buy water. He's like, water is free. It's in the rivers. She buys fire, but he gets mad. He's like, I'm just going to go cut a tree down. He cuts down, like, a park tree, which he gets arrested for. This man lives very freely, even though he has to work so hard. And now it's like a society that's making him work less hard, but he feels so much less free. He's like freaking out in this tiny room, and it seems to exacerbate his underlying mental problems. It's kind of cute to see Arsenev's son, Vova, idolize him. We get Arsenev's wife, who I don't even think is named. Her name is Anna, but I don't think it's ever said in the movie. There was two things about the scene that I didn't like. One, Arsenev, as soon as they get home, seems to immediately not give a shit about Dersu. Obviously, Dersu is losing his mind and so miserable. And Arsenev is like, he'll get used to it, whatever. And like the glasses thing, what I thought is, why didn't he just like buy him a cabin at the edge of town where he could go into the woods every day? Like, why does he have to live in his house? This man can afford a cabin at the edge, like, in the woods, like, not far enough away where they could bring him food. Their suit could just build one. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, why does he have to be here in, like, the worst possible location for him? Yeah, that's a very good point. He doesn't have to, like, lose his mind like this. He doesn't have to suffer through this, but he does. And then the solution is, hey, I gotta go, I gotta get back out there. Like, can I just go to the hills? And then as, like, a parting gift, he gives him his, like, best rifle. Yeah, he's like, he's like, it's a new model of a rifle. It's got way bigger and better sights. He's giving him something to accommodate for Dersu's diminishing eyesight, which is very, very sweet. It's clear to me that, like, that probably won't actually work. He's trying his best. You know, like, there's no real solution except glasses. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... yeah, he's doing the best with what he can for this man that he owes his life to. And just, like, he's just watching this other man's life fade away and he can't save it in the same way that his was saved. We get a moment then after he leaves, it's very much like Akiru, where we suddenly are on Watanabe's photo at his wake, and we just all of a sudden are looking at a telegram that just says, Arsenev's ID card was found on a dead man, we would like you to come identify the body. You loosen the way Arsenev does. It's so sudden, it's so impersonal. He meets with the guy who's doing the death certificate, and he's like, I know you're sad, but I got work to do. These two guys just dig a grave, put him in it, and then fill the grave with soil, and then walk away. And he's just standing there watching. Dursu dies because he was killed by a thief who wanted his new gun. So in a way, it's kind of Arsenev's fault <laughs> that he gets murdered. Another way that Arsenev is, like, indirectly responsible for, like, he's, as you said, chartering out expeditions into Dersu's territory, and that now he is given him something that put a target on his back. Anything he does to try and, like, push him forward with civilization just ruins him. I think it's a beautiful moment. It's a lot like also, you know, ending on the grave is just like the ending of Seven Samurai. And we get like end credits, which we don't get. Yeah. I think it's the thing like a 70s thing. The final shot is his walking staff, which he's had for the entire movie, though it gets shorter over time. Yeah. Stuck in the dirt like the samurai swords. And Arsniev walks away. And 
it's full circle. You know, we started at the grave sort of indirectly, and then now we end at the grave. I think it's a great ending, even though some stuff in the town doesn't really look as good, and some of it's kind of shorthanded. Would have been nice to maybe have a little bit more time with it, because it really is like, Dersu did this, and that's wrong, and then cut, and then, oh, now Dersu did this, and that's wrong, cut, or Dersu did this, and that's wrong. We might have wanted a little bit more time and nuance with it, but it doesn't change the fact that the end scene at the grave is a spectacular scene in this movie. I didn't know how they were going to wrap it up, and there was no better way. I think it was perfect. On to favorite shots. Mine is a pretty basic pick, if I'm being honest. It's not like a movie where the cinematography suddenly jumps out in a certain way. It's just cool the whole way. It's Dersu and Arsniev standing, looking at the sunset, and the sunset's on the right side of the frame, and on the left side of the frame, way up, is the moon. The sun is very red, and the moon is very blue. It really is the left side with Arsniev is like the cold, looming night of civilization. He's got the topographical equipment next to him. It's this coldness to it that isn't matched by the warm sun that Dersu is occupying, but that is setting. You know, the sun is going down and the moon is rising, and that's exactly what's happening with their whole lives. It's just civilization is coming and Dersu's way of life will no longer be feasible. And the way that it's framed, you really don't see much of the landscape, which is pretty uncommon for this movie because we do see so much nature. But it really is just putting the emphasis entirely on the two of them. And it really does feel like there's nothing else in the world except them at this moment, which I find beautiful. It's a great shot. That's a beautiful shot. My shot similarly was just a really nice shot in nature (laughs) Um, because that's kind of what the whole movie was. So my shot is during the lake scene, but it's when they were lost. And it was actually something that kind of bothered me a little bit in the film. The shot is like just the two of them. It's Durso on the left, Arseniev on the right. And they're just like directly, perfectly in the middle of the frame in this huge, empty, like barren, blistering landscape. They're standing on ice, surrounded by water and ice with nothing in the distance, but maybe some grass. And there's clouds above and it looks so bleak. It's just like a perfect shot of them. What did bother me was I was like, you look, it looks like you can see for 20 miles here and they can't see the guys who aren't that far away. The horizon is almost perfectly flat. Yeah, hashtag where's the curve? Yeah, yeah. No, but it's the perfect use of the 70 millimeter film. This entire scene was just insanely beautiful. The whole movie was really like that, where he uses these locations and these just like, you know, humans versus nature setups where these guys really do feel so insignificant compared to this immense landscape. And it almost kills them, but they they make it through. And the whole thing was just beautifully shot. It was. Also, I love the music in this movie. I forgot to mention, but I love the guy singing. The guy singing was really cool. Love Russian choir music. A lot of the movie is silent, we're just kind of hearing the sounds of nature, but I think whenever the music is in here, it's really nice. As for the movie as a whole, I've seen this one twice now. Both times, I've wanted to like it more than I do. I really love Dersu, and I really love a lot of things about the movie. I feel about it kind of the way I feel about Drunken Angel, where there's so much of it that I'm like, wow, this is really, really great stuff. And then there's other parts where I'm like, this is so repetitive, or it's just not going anywhere, It's not very tight, and I think Kurosawa is always at his best when he gets it tighter. He has a tendency to go long, but I do think that this movie is a bit unfocused. It's a film that deals more, I think, in subtext than in text, but that leads to a lot of the same scenes of Dersu and Arsniev walking through the woods and things. And I think if Arsniev was actually a character, this movie would be a lot better. He's our focus, and we go through the whole movie, we know nothing about him. He literally exists purely as an avatar for us. And that's not very Kurosawa-like. He's very good at making characters. And I think it's a real shame that he didn't put that same emphasis in this movie that he does in a lot of his other ones. 
And so, unfortunately, the film is ranking a little lower for me than I was hoping. It's kind of in like a 7 and an 8 for me. It's kind of like a 7.5, but I think for giving it a definitive star score, I'm going to have to put it at a 7, a 3.5 out of 5 stars. Which makes me sad. I really, really want to love it more. But talking about it, it's feels great. Like, I'm like, wow, I love all this stuff about this movie, but there are so many things that we're not touching on in this conversation because it's just the same thing over and over again. It just keeps happening, and there's no sense of momentum. Like, we're not really going anywhere. We're just kind of booling in the woods. So it's too bad that it's not better for me, but I don't know. I know you liked it. I was certain that you would like this one. I didn't know what to expect, but uh, I guess a little background about my viewing experience, a little background about me. Love a good movie in the woods. Love a movie that's just vibes. That's just like people out in nature and nothing happens. So like a gear, the wrath of God is one of my favorite movies of all time. This movie is very similar. Love the feeling of the film stock and the color and how insane that was. I can get easily bored, but when I sat down, I knew I was in a mood to watch like a whole long movie the whole way through and be invested in all of it. I was, and it was great. Uh, and I want to give it a nine. It wasn't perfect. There feels like there was supposed to be something transcendental there that didn't quite all the way come through, but I still really liked it. So nine out of 10 for me. Absolutely. Such a beautiful film. I love the concepts that he's grappling with, like the end of pre-modern civilization, the rise of civilization, and actually, you know, the size of civilization might be worse. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I liked everything about it. <laughs> I want to watch it again. Yeah, no, that's great. Too bad you weren't alive in 1975 because this won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, which is another one of Kurosawa's biggest awards ever in a long history. I insist that the 70s are my favorite decade, and I just keep getting proven right over and over again. <laughs> No more Kurosawa films in the 70s. Next, we're moving to Kagemusha in 1980. I got so much to talk about with this one. There's a lot of background, a lot of stuff that I know about it. I studied this one very, very thoroughly. So we'll be doing that. Also, keep your eyes peeled in the middle of the week for a little something-something. I won't say any more about that, but it's incredibly obvious. Yeah. <laughs> Check in with us two times next week. Yeah.